Good morning, Redeemer Church. I just want to tell you how much my heart rejoiced to hear the testimonies of God's faithfulness this morning. Chris and Laura, I just really rejoice with you all. I'm sorry I didn't catch your name, but thank you so much for your testimony. And Havel, I just want to affirm your testimony as I heard you share um, the, the, the phrase painful providence came to my mind. You, you experienced a very painful providence in your life over the last year and a half. And I just think that it's that it's really wonderful that you experienced it somewhat in private, but now you give public praise yeah. to the Lord. Amen. And I just want to affirm your rejoicing in the Lord. Yeah. I also want to say uh, that I have my own testimony to give this, this week. Um, I was contemplating at the beginning of the week going out to Dallas to support uh, JSU. I found out that the the stadium was going to be dominantly uh, filled with North North Dakota State fans. And uh, as you all know, I work with the team and kind of oversee the FCA ministry there. And so my boss said, Ryan, yeah, I think it would be a a good idea for you to go out and and support Coach Gross and Coach Bates and others. And so I started to try to make plans for that. And what happened was, as I'm thinking about making plans, I asked Coach if I could get a, a ticket or a pass into the game. And, and uh, right, when, right when he found one for me, uh, I was beside the FCA Tuscaloosa director at a, st- at a state staff meeting. And he said, well, how are you going to get out there, bro? And I said, well, I don't really know. And he said, well, I'm going to Arizona with one of our home team members in a private plane. I think you might want to have one extra chair, one extra seat in the plane. Let me give him a call. We might could drop you off in Dallas on our way out to Glendale. So he made the phone call, and the guy said, sure, he can go with us. We've got an extra seat. And lo and behold, Friday morning, I go over to the Pell uh, City Airport, private airport, and this guy who has his own plane and is a pilot puts me in the co-pilot chair as we are going to fly out, and they're going to drop me off in Dallas. Now, for you social media network friends of mine, you saw me in the co-pilot chair. And I started getting a lot of texts, and I sent that picture to my mom in the flight. And she said, Ryan, I'm worried. <laughs> I, said, uh, I said, it's okay, Mom, I played Nintendo as a kid. We'll be fine. All the while I'm praying for the pilot not to have a heart attack or a stroke because we would have been in deep trouble. But I, I do want to say this. I, I want to say I thank God for His provision for me to go out and support JSU and those Christian coaches who are seeking to make a difference in, in their young men's lives. And uh, even though it wasn't a good outcome for us, I'm confident God is at work uh, in that team and among those people. Yeah. I want to now pray. Uh, let's pray and ask God for illumination as we open up His Word. Father, we're about to open up Your Scriptures. This is the word that you have inspired. These are the words which you have given for us for life and godliness. We are to be taught today by your word. We are are to be corrected and instructed and trained in righteousness through your word. And so right now we pray that you would do a miracle. That you would speak spiritual life into the deadness of our hearts, that you would raise us yet again from the 
from the darkness of worldly thoughts and the the darkness of worldly pleasures and that You would show us that at Your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We pray this for the sake of Jesus Christ's glory. Amen. I ask you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I will remind you that last week we looked at chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapters 2, verse 11. And what we said starting off last week is that God is building His kingdom. He is building it. Right now. And Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And if you and I are ever going to see our lives in its proper light, if we're ever going to see the, the, the story of our lives in its proper light, we've got to see it in light of God building His kingdom. Where do I fit in to God building His kingdom is the question that we must ask. And last week we saw that God is building His kingdom through the crisis of brokenness. You remember this? Hannah was broken. Her life was shattered, so to speak. And yet she cries out to God in desperation. And God uses Hannah's prayer and Hannah's desires to begin to build His kingdom in Israel yet again. And so today we're going to be looking at the crisis of leadership. It's the first part of a a two-part sermon series on the crisis of leadership. I want to ask you, have you and or your family ever been on a vacation and the vacation rolls over into a Sunday and you think to yourself, well, we'd really like to go to church, but you find yourself in 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 a town uh, and, and in a scene of which you're not familiar, and so you, you end up saying, well, there's a church down the road, let's go try that out, because we want to worship the Lord with God's people today. Well, if you've ever been in that kind of scenario, just kind of put yourself in that scenario right now. Just, just kind of imagine yourself in another town, and you're wanting to go to church, and at that church, you drive up into the parking lot of that church, and the very first person that meets you is one of the church's leaders. And as you drive in the parking lot... He says, roll your window down. And you roll your window down and he said, it'll be $10. $10 for what? $10 to park. $10 to park at a church? Yes, yeah, $10. That's, that's our, our front fee. And so you have to fork them out $10 to, to just get into the parking lot. You park and your family comes in and, and there's nobody really all that excited to greet you. There are some chairs and so you step in and, and all of a sudden the, the, the feel of the church is not exactly what you were hoping for. And then you, you see these leaders and, and you see this stage and up on the stage there are these basically like thrones. And at these thrones, these church leaders are sitting and, and they take up an offering to start off with and you notice that some of the leaders who are taking up the offering are putting money that they're getting in the offering into their coat pockets. And then when it was time to speak, 
The leaders don't have a Bible. They, they don't care anything about the Bible. They just go on and on about how it's important for you to submit to leadership and to do whatever leaders tell you to do and that that's what's the right thing and that's what's the best thing. And after singing a few songs, the service is over and it feels very empty and it feels very carnal. And then they have this fellowship meal and everybody brings all of this food. But instead of women and children and visitors going first, all of the leaders come up off the thrones and they get first dibs at the fellowship meal. And everybody else has to sit and watch. And then once they've eaten their meal, they get to go up for seconds. And then they continue to eat. And then it's time for the other people to eat the leftovers of, of what the, the leaders did not want. That is, that is an absurd picture, right? I mean, who, is that really going on in, 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 in the world today? Well, not in such an overt way. Not such an overt way. But in sneaky and sly ways, there are leaders all over the world who are out to pillage and to steal from church members and church visitors. Why? Because they are carnal, they are fleshly, they are out for personal glory and not the glory of God. And I want to tell you that that is the scene 3,000 years ago in Israel in a place called Shiloh. There are leaders in God's temple, in God's tabernacle, who are out for personal glory. And they know no shame. They know absolutely no shame. And so there is a crisis of leadership, not only in the world today, but there was a crisis in leadership in Israel in that day. And I just want our church to understand from the text today, chapter 2, verse 12, all the way down through the end of the chapter, that God is calling us to be better leaders. He is calling us to be better parents by warning us of corruption and motivating us toward righteousness. That's what I believe the thrust of this passage is for us. God is calling us to be better leaders. He's calling us to be better parents so that we will be warned about corruption in leadership and motivated to be pure leaders and righteous leaders, godly leaders who find satisfaction in the Lord above. That's where we want to go today. And so under the crisis of leadership, I really want us to see four headings. For our text today, the first heading is the abuse of leadership. We want to see the abuse of leadership that is going on in Israel, among the Israelite people, and we want to be warned about abusive leadership. So if you'll take your eyes and look down at your Bibles, and we're going to see in verses 12 through 17 the abuse of leadership. Now the sons of Eli, we've already been introduced to them, this Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli. Eli would be the head priest, and they are kind of under his supposed tutelage as priests of the Lord. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. What a way to start. They did not know the Lord. I want to tell you, Samuel gives us, right here in verse 12, the root of abusive leadership. You want to ask the question, what is abusive leadership all about? Listen, we're about to see the fruit of it. But right there is the root. They were worthless men. That phrase literally means sons of Belial. That's false worship right there. They are sons of Belial. They are worthless. They, are, they despise the Lord. They despise the Lord's worship. They despise even um, 
bringing offerings and making sacrifices to the Lord. They are worthless men because they have no desire to know the Lord, to worship the Lord, to honor the Lord. Why? Because their heart is filled with self-worship. Their heart is filled with self-centeredness. They are narcissistic priests who use the temple of God to bring praise and adoration and satisfaction to themselves rather than to God. Now, the root of abusive leadership comes from not knowing the Lord and loving the Lord. It's where it comes from. And I will tell you, leaders, church leaders in particular here at Redeemer, we will become abusive to Redeemer Church when we don't foster in our own hearts a love for God, a desire for God, a willingness to know the Lord, to to have our own personal time with God and yieldedness to Him. The root of abusive leadership comes in not loving and honoring the Lord and elevating your personal desires above the glory of God. That's exactly where Hophni and Phinehas are. Let's look at the fruit of abusive leadership. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice... The priest's servant, kind of his, just kind of like just the guy who does his, his uh, hard work, his labor. His, he says the, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork. And you better believe that thing was sharp. With a three-pronged pork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. Whatever they were boiling the meat with. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh. Now look at that little preposition word there, that little word to. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. That tells us that what they were doing was beyond what was actually prescribed. What was prescribed? I think it was uh, you know, like a portion of a right leg and a portion of the meat was due to the priest. But instead of taking just a portion, they took this fork and they stabbed and whatever came out, came out for the priest. This was well above and beyond what was prescribed. All right? Why? Because they were out to take advantage of the worshipers at Shiloh. Not only that, keep looking, keep reading. Moreover, before the fat was burned, before the fat was burned, the the fat was prescribed to be burned as an offering to the Lord. This was to be a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord as an act of worship before Him. But before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat. From you, but only raw. And if the man, that is, if the worshiper, if the man who brought his family to worship at Shiloh said to him, Now, now wait just a second. Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. You see, the worshiper would say that because he would know that that's what the Lord had prescribed. This is what the, this is what the priest servant would say. No! You must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Can you imagine the priest of the Lord sending one of his servants to speak so violently? 
And this is an incredible sight. Now, Hannah had just prayed earlier in chapter 2 and given praise to God, and she said that God will grow His kingdom not by what? Might. Not by might. And here, the priests of the Lord are saying, we're going to do what we want by our own might. And so look at verse 17. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt, with disdain, with disrespect, with dishonor. If you look at the fruit of abusive of abusive leadership, what you see here is greed. What you see here is gluttony. What you see here is violence. What you see here is contempt for the Lord. And if you'll just peek your eyes down here at verse 22, it says Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Listen, they had turned the temple into a brothel. And they were being abusive in every way possible to worshipers in Shiloh. This is abusive leadership. Abusive leadership is marked by a heart that is out for self-glory rather than God's glory. And it is, it is marked by, by demonstrations of that through being greedy, being gluttonous, being sexually immoral, being harsh, and being heavy-handed. This was the, these were the leaders at Shiloh. And listen, I want to tell you, nothing has changed in 3,000 years. Now, if, you look, if you look at leadership in the world today, and you look at abusive leadership inside the church and outside the church, the same exact things happen every single day. Men and women are greedy. Men and women are gluttonous. Men and women are sexually immoral. Men and women will use their platform of leadership to get their carnal desires and their carnal appetites met. Why? Because they have no appetite for the glory of the Lord. And uh, leaders here at Redeemer Church, I just want to say, if you want to be guarded from abusive leadership, if you don't want to be abusive, then you better cultivate a, a, a knowledge of God and a love for God and being in awe of the glory of God. Because if you don't, you are well on your way toward becoming an abusive leader. Yeah. Now, folks, I want to tell you, too, that it's not just for leaders in the church. If you have any influence whatsoever, if you're a parent, if you're a boss, if you're a director, if you're a teacher, you have influence. And if you have influence, you know what you are? You're a leader. You're a leader. So guard your heart very closely and cultivate a love for God. The second thing I want us to see is the neglect of leadership. We're going to come back to some of these passages in this narrative, and I'll show you why in just a little while. But if you'll look down at verse 22 and following, we see now the neglect of leadership the neglect of leadership. We'll read verse 22 again. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Keep your eyes on the text right there, because right here we see that Eli has a lack of discipleship over his own two sons. Now to Eli's defense, it says that he's very old. 
All right, he's very old. But I don't think that this is included, this statement is included to somehow absolve Eli from his accountability and, and, and from the fact that he's responsible. But it says he kept hearing about all that his sons were doing to all Israel. He's hearing about it. He's hearing about it. People are coming up to him and saying, hey, your sons are doing this, or hey, your sons are doing that. What are you going to do? And what this does is it indicates that Eli does not have a close relationship with his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. He's not there. Not as it, it's not just as he's not holding them accountable. He's not discipling them. He's not instructing them. He's not training them. And he's also not holding them accountable as not only as a dad to his sons, but also as a head priest to his priests who are underneath him. There is a lack of discipleship in Israel and it is causing an abusive leadership situation. And brothers and sisters, I, I just I want to say, I want to say that if you have leadership, if you're a mom or a dad, if you're an elder or a deacon, if you're a boss, if you're a supervisor, if you're a director, if you're a teacher, you are responsible to train those who are underneath you. You're responsible to cultivate a relationship of love and worship of those who are underneath you. You are responsible to bring the people who are underneath you into a knowledge of the Lord and to help cultivate. Can you make them have a relationship with the Lord? No, but you are absolutely responsible to do everything that you can to help them know and serve and worship the Lord. Look at his lack of courage and his lack of character. Let's just read 23 to 25. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen. They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. At first glance, we want to applaud Eli's confrontation with his two sons. At first glance. But what we see in this confrontation is not courage. What we see is not character. It is... It is a dad who has been enabling his sons for far too long. It is a dad who is more concerned with a relationship with his sons than with the honor and praise of God and the flourishment of the people of God. It is a dad who is an enabler. It is a dad who has said, my son's happiness is more important than the God of glory's honor. That's what's going on here. Notice what you don't see in this confrontation is an all out and out rebuke. Notice what you don't see in this confrontation is, hey, listen, if you're going to live this way, that's fine, but at, but, but at the very least, it's not going to be done as priests of God. You don't see that here. You see a lack of courage to actually make decisions that promote the glory of God and protect the people of God. No, what you see is a dad who is too accustomed to cowering down to his own children. I... I have one of my favorite books on leadership with me here today. It's by Al Mohler. On page 208 of his book, Conviction to Lead, I want to read to you a section called The Perpetuation of Conviction. 
The perpetuation of conviction. Mark, what does the word perpetuation mean generally? Exactly, to continue it on. That's right, to continue something on. And so this whole book here is on the continuing on of conviction. The continuing on of real leadership. And listen to what Moeller says. He says, The leader's central concern with regard to legacy is the perpetuation of conviction. The ongoingness of real conviction. We lead because we're possessed by deep beliefs that mature into convictions. Let me ask you something. Is there something in, in your life that, that, that you believed at one point, but now has become an absolute conviction of your heart? All right? Surely that, that's true for most of us in here. We lead out of those convictions. We lead out of those deep-rooted resolves that this is right, and this is best, and this is how I'm going to live my life. That's what Moeller is saying. And he says, our leadership consists of developing those convictions in others. I just want to tell you that when I lead Redeemer Church, I want you to know I lead out of my convictions. I lead out of the fact that the Bible is the Word of God. That it is authoritative. And that, that every day, every day, People are to live for the glory of God and not themselves. I lead out of those convictions. And that's what Moeller says we must because we want to instill those convictions in others. And so he says, our leadership consists of developing those convictions in others who will then act together in the service of those beliefs, motivated to common action in the mission of sharing those convictions and living them out before the watching world. The convictional leader strives to end to I'm sorry, the convictional leader strives to the end to see fundamental beliefs taken up by others who will then join in the mission that grows out of those convictions. And then he gives an example, and I won't read it. But do you guys know how Harvard and Princeton were founded? Most of you historians do. But Harvard and Princeton were founded on the gospel. By gospel leaders. But as one generation passed away and gave the baton to another generation, the same convictions that the founders held were held loosely by the second generation. To the degree that by the third generation, both Princeton and Harvard and Yale started slipping away from the gospel, slipping away from the Word of God, so that one generation after another now... Harvard and Yale and Princeton stand against everything that the founders of those universities stood for years ago. How does that happen? How does it happen? It happens when leaders are not courageous. It happens when leaders don't have character to do the right thing all the time when nobody's looking. It happens when there is a lack of love for God and you exchange love for God and knowledge of God for love for yourself and a desire to have your physical needs satisfied or your physical desires satisfied. Conviction to lead, that is not neglecting your responsibilities but pressing into them. And parents, I just want to speak to you right now. I, I, get, a daily, I get a daily article on, on leading young people. Uh, it's by Tim Elmore. It's called Growing Leaders. 
Uh, I'm sure you could subscribe to it if you like. It's not, it's not overtly Christian. I don't want to give you that impression. But I was struck, I think it was about Wednesday when I read this article. As 2015 came to a close, an unbelievable story resurfaced in the news. Do you remember hearing about Ethan Couch? The kid who got drunk, drove his pickup truck off the road, killed four people, and then ran from the accident to avoid the consequences. While this is appalling enough, the story went viral when we heard his attorney's defense for his conduct. Does anybody remember what the the defense for his conduct was? Affluenza. Affluenza. For those of you who have never heard of the term affluenza, it is this. The inability for adolescents to even know what's appropriate because they grew up with privileges and money. It blinds them from seeing right from wrong. And life is pretty much about them. In short, affluence clouds clear judgment. Ethan was caught, but due to his affluenza, he avoided prison time and was put on probation. To make matters worse, the story took a dramatic turn a couple weeks ago. You're aware of this. Ethan's mother, Tanya, actually helped him escape his Texas probation and flee to Mexico. Mom felt his light sentence, not prison, just probation, she felt his light sentence was too much for her boy to handle. And she wanted to free him from the clutches of the law. In fact, before escaping to Mexico, she actually threw him a going away party. Psychologists have used a term for decades now to describe what this mom is doing, and they call it enabling. It's when a leader actually fosters unhealthy behavior. It happens due to a conflicted motive. We want what's best, but we feel sympathy for the person that we love. And somehow, we feel we should lighten their emotional burden. And in this case, Tanya felt sorry for Ethan, and she overlooked the obvious negative consequences to her actions and eased the pain that he felt today. Now, Why would I read that to you? I'll read that to you because I believe parents, we are in danger of enabling our children and not even knowing it. We are in danger of loving our kids or caring for our kids in a certain way where they are the center of their own universe. Where where everything revolves around their desires, their likes and dislikes, their wants and the things that they don't want to have. And before you know it, they have a narcissistic view of their lives. And then then what happens? This is what happens. When you foster that kind of attitude in a child, when they grow up to become a late teenager and an adult, they are a narcissist. They they are someone who is, is life is all about them. It's not about the glory of God. It is about their own glory. It is about their own honor their own satisfaction, their own fleshly desires. That's what happens. Some of you are thinking, there's no way I would ever do what this mom did. I would say, I don't don't know that to be true or false. This is what I do know, that every day the glory of God is at stake when you parent your kids. And every day you have the option. You can either train them in the fear and in the admonition of the Lord, or you can train them to be the sinners of their own universe. Which one are you going to do? 
the neglect of leadership on behalf of Eli. The third thing I want to show you is the accountability of leadership. The accountability of leadership. Look at verse 27. Well, as we approach this part of the text, I just want to say that generally speaking, when a prophet comes out of nowhere, and here he's called the man of God, we don't even know his name. When he comes out of nowhere, normally it's not a real pleasant sign for whoever it is that's being confronted. All right? And so normally what happens is, He says, I'm from the Lord. This is what the Lord has to say. You're in sin, and I got got some bad news. All right? Well, that's basically what happens here. All right? But what happens specifically as we walk through the rest of this passage is that the Lord is saying this. This is what I've done. This is what you've done. And so, therefore, this is what I'm going to do. All right? So, as you're reading through this, this is what I've done, the Lord says. This is what you've done, he says to Eli, and so this is what I'm going to do, he says, for the future. So look at verses 27 and 28. He says, There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Stop right there. The Lord is saying that when your people were in bondage and slavery in Egypt and they were struggling and they were, they were miserable, they cried out to me and I heard their cry and I chose Moses. And not only did I choose Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, but I chose his brother Aaron to be a priest. And I, I gave him this amazing privilege to lead worship among my people and to bring offerings before me and to be the leader among the people to make sacrifices and to be a mediator between me and the people. I gave him this privilege. I gave them this honor. I gave them this wonderful thing that I bestowed on him. Did I not do that? And Eli would have to say, yes, you did do that. And it has been perpetuated year after year and generation after generation after generation. Yes, you did that, Lord. And that is an amazing privilege and that is an amazing honor that I am a part of the leadership in Israel. So, verse 29 then, the Lord addresses the problem. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Stop right there. There is an indication here that Eli was responsible. He's accountable here. I believe Eli is probably partaking of this greedy, fleshly, gluttonous approach to leadership at the temple. And one reason I think that is we find out later in Samuel that he's a fat man. 
So, verse 30. Therefore, the, God, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will, dis- I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. This is what you've done. You have neglected my glory. You have pursued your own. You have neglected being a good dad and a a dad who trains and a good priest and a priest who brings accountability in worship. And you have neglected all of that and you have pursued your own honor and not mine. And so this is what I'm going to do. I am going to take this away from you. Let's read 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will, be not, there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons... Hophni and Phinehas shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. This is really a troubling text in some ways. And it's also a very comforting text. It's comforting because we should know that God always holds His leaders accountable. He is. He's just. And so sometimes His holding leaders accountable comes in the here and now. It comes in the immediate moment. And then other times, the, the, the ultimate accountability happens when they face Him after they die. Right. But make no mistake, church, God will always hold His leaders accountable. And, and I think that's, that should give us pause whenever we take any position of leadership. That should give us pause whenever we take any responsibility that gives us influence over others. Because to the degree that we have influence over other people is the degree to which we will be accountable before the Lord of glory. I think that's why James tells his church in chapter 3 of his epistle, let not many of you become teachers. Because you're going to be held accountable for how you teach and the life that you live. But I think it also gives us a bit of trouble because if you read what I read right there, God had established a priesthood that shall last for how long? Forever. Forever. And yet, what is He doing right now with that line of priests? He's cutting it off. And so you could say, God is not fulfilling His promises. He's he's breaking His promises. God's, what, wait a minute, what's going on? Is there a conditional nature to this? Absolutely, there is a conditional nature to God's promises here. And the condition is, I will establish my priesthood forever, except that if you neglect me and despise me and hate me and despise the worship, then I will cut you off and I will raise up new leaders who will love me and honor me. Listen, I... I know that we could spend hours talking about the unconditionality and the conditionality of God's promises and how 
how that might should trouble us, but I, I'm pretty sure that we're not supposed to philosophize about this right here. I'm pretty sure that you and I are supposed to tremble before a God who places holiness as a priority among leadership. And so the accountability of leadership comes in and He says, I'm going to cut you off because I'm holding you accountable and I'm going to protect my people from leaders like you. The last thing I want you to see in this text is something that um, was really beautifully done through this text, and and that is um, the hope of leadership. The hope of leadership. And we didn't read it, but if you look up at chapter 2, verse 11, it really starts there. The hope of leadership starts in verse 11, because what Samuel does is kind of just kind of intersperse these little tidbits That even in the midst of terrible sin, even in the midst of greed and gluttony and abuse, even in the midst of self-centeredness and narcissism, God is still going to be raising up somebody to lead His people, to build His kingdom, to advance His church until one day it all comes to a consummation. And so we see that in little bitty tidbits here. Look at verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy, that is Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Look down at verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would... Bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. And indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. You're seeing him grow. You're seeing him serve. You're seeing him develop. You're seeing him be in favor of all of the people who would come in and out. You see this little guy as having a heart for the Lord. And then look down again at verses 35 and 36. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. What the Lord is doing here is making a promise that He's going to raise up a righteous priest. Now church, I want to tell you that I, I believe that in Old Testament prophecy, often you have not just, not just one culmination, not just one fulfillment. A lot of times you have something that happens in the immediate and then happens in the ultimate. There has the already and the not yet. And I believe what the Lord is doing here is He is promising kind of an, an immediate Hey, listen, Samuel is going to be a faithful leader. But he's not specifically talking about Samuel in the Old Testament. This entire priesthood is going to be ripped from Eli's family and Eli's line, and it's going to be given to a guy named Zadok in 1 Kings chapter 2. 
If you're interested in this, you can go read 1 Kings chapter 2. And God gives it. Solomon strips from Abiathar the priesthood. Abiathar was in line with Eli, completely strips it from him and gives it to Zadok. And God fulfills His promise in the immediate by, by removing that whole line from leadership. But I believe the ultimate fulfillment is that God is raising up a faithful priest, namely Jesus Christ. Namely, Jesus Christ, who is going to mediate for us. He's going to mediate for us as He lives on earth, as He goes to the cross, and He serves as the ultimate high priest. He's not giving an offering of of a lamb or a goat. He's not giving an offering of a dove. He is not offering anything that is uh, from an animal. He's offering up Himself as a great high priest. And now He serves as our great high priest in heaven at the right hand of God. And He advocates for us day in and day out as the ultimate faithful priest. And I will just draw your attention to one more little beautiful thing about this promise for Jesus Christ of Jesus Christ in 35. He says, I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will build him a sure house and he'll go in and out before my anointed forever. He's going to be going in and out the King. And we see kind of an indication that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of both the priesthood and the kingship of the Messiah. He's one and the same. He is both our great priest and He's our King like we studied in December. Okay, I would like to ask the music team to come up right now. I would like to ask you to just enter into a time of of worship, of meditation right now in your own life. Because I'm just going to call you to do three things right now by way of meditation. And I want you to be in a place where you can truly think about your life. I said last week, and just in a passing comment, that these are gray days in the time of Israel. They're just gray days. The kingdom is dark at this time. And church, I just want to tell you, I believe that in many ways these are gray days in our, in our culture. And I think that you and I have an opportunity... to shine our light as the light of the world into this darkness, into this grayness. But we also have the opportunity to contribute to the darkness even though we're the light of the world. And I just want to tell you, I think you need to do three things if you want to shine the light of the glory of God as you lead, as you love, as you shepherd. I think the first thing that you need to do is you need to guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says that you should guard your heart because from it flow the issues of life. What's going on in your heart? What do you want the most? What do you desire the most? And, and, And in wanting that and desiring that, what are you doing in the everyday arrangement of your life to get to that desire, to get to that satisfaction? Listen, I meditated this week in, a, in an FCA meeting where one of our leaders says, you know that a goal without a plan is a wish? That's all it is. 
A goal without a plan is a wish. And so if my goal is to honor God in my leadership, to have a heart that loves Him, then I've got to have a plan that cultivates love. I've got to have a plan that cultivates worship. You will not come to the end of your life and found that it was well lived if you had no plan to guard your heart and to cultivate a heart of worship. And so I encourage you this week to have a plan to cultivate love for God, to cultivate worship of God, to cultivate knowledge of God. The second thing I want to say is specifically to you, you parents, shepherd the hearts of your children. Shepherd the hearts of your children. Listen, it will not be sufficient to say, don't touch that. Pick up your clothes. What did I tell you? Come on now. No. no. That, look, that stuff happens. But let me tell you, if all you're doing is telling them to follow physical commands, you're going to look up one day and they are going to have a heart that is hard toward God. And they're going to be like Hophni and Phinehas. And they will have no regard for His glory. They will have only contempt. And they will come and sit in a church service and they will be bored to tears waiting for the surface service to end. Why? Because then they can fulfill the lusts of their flesh. Shepherd the hearts of your children. And then the third thing I want to say is look at the heart of Christ. Look at the very heart of Christ. That while He existed and thrived as the second member of the Trinity for all eternity. He had a heart of love. He had a heart of leadership. He had a heart to serve. And I have a heart to demonstrate high character and high courage. He had a heart that said, I want to love people in such a way that they will be drawn to my kind of love and my kind of leadership. And folks, I I just really believe the words of John when he says we need to look to Jesus. And we need to walk as He walked. And we should love as He loved. And we should lead as He led. Because in doing that, we will be following the faithful high priest. And we will be turning away from fleshly leaders like Hophni and Phinehas. I'll give you a moment to meditate on that as we prepare to worship our God. And when we read 1 Samuel 2, 12-36... Man, we see darkness. We see greediness and the gluttony and the self-worship and the sexual immorality. And we say, man, where is God? And interspersed in a verse here and a verse there and a verse here and a verse there, God is saying, there's the boy Samuel. There's the boy Samuel. There's this boy Samuel. And you know what he's actually saying in even saying that? There's a Savior, Jesus. There's a Savior. He's coming. Hold on. Wait for the promised one. Trust me, I'm always working. You may not can see it, and you definitely may not feel it, but I am at work here. Trust me. And listen, I don't know what your darkness is today. I don't know what your struggle is. It may be a difficult boss. It may be a bad parenting situation right now. It may be a troubled marriage. It may be really dark. But God is saying, trust me. I've got a Savior coming for you. He's my Son. He's your King. He's your priest. He's your prophet. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. And you will enjoy sweetness in His kingdom forever and ever. 
Church, I want to call you today. Don't trust in me. Don't trust in the leaders of this church. But trust in the ultimate leader. His name is Jesus. He'll never fail you. He'll never abandon you. He'll never take advantage of you. He will actually die for you and rise from the dead that you may flourish forever. Trust Him today. Love Him today. He loves you. Amen? Amen. Amen.